Welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. My name is Sean O'Neill, and I'm a staff member at IPA. I'll be your host for this episode. Thanks for listening. On today's episode, I'm joined by Preston Shell, Chairman and CEO of Ocean Atlantic Companies and a partner at Shell Brothers Home Builders. You may recognize the Shell Brothers name, or you may know someone who now lives in a Shell Brothers community. They've been one of the most active new home builders in the rapidly expanding coastal Sussex market in recent years. Preston shares how he got into the real estate development business in coastal Sussex, how he approaches developing a new community, and what the future looks like both for his business and the coastal Sussex community in general. Our interview was recorded on February 10th, 2021. This is the first of four episodes where I'll be talking to experts in the real estate and land use professions in Delaware's three counties. So keep an eye out for future episodes covering Newcastle County, Kent County, and an overview of trends for all three counties. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome everyone. I'm joined today by Preston Shell. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be talking a little bit about Preston's background, his business, and you know some of the development happening in Sussex, particularly coastal Sussex today. So Preston, I think you're a native Delawarean. Is that, that right? Yes. Well, I consider myself to be, you could ask some of my cousins who went to high school in Delaware, which is their kind of, that's how you prove you're truly native if you went to high school here, that I'm not because I did. I went to high school in Northern California, but my dad's family has been from the Lewis area since the early to mid 1700s. And we grew up every summer all our lives in Lewis, including when we lived in California, we would fly back here for the summer and then um, have lived here year round since I was 23. But when I lived in California and we lived in Northern New Jersey for a little bit before that, we told everybody we were from Delaware. <laughs> so I feel like that's kind of a test. That's kind of a, you know, a, a test on it that, well, what'd you tell people when you lived in California? You're from California or Delaware? And, I, and they all called Chris and I the Delaware twins. So uh, yes, in short, I'm native, but don't ask my cousins. Okay. I'm familiar with the high school test too, because I, I lived here until I was about 10 or 11. And then I lived in Maryland for 20 years and I've been back for about nine years now, but I, I don't meet the high school test. I went to high school in Maryland. So <laughs> that's funny. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, how, how that impacts your approach to business? For about two years there, I went to Harvard Business School um, and got my MBA between 2000 and 2002. And my twin brother did that also. And I didn't really feel like going to Harvard. Actually, I, I had already started Ocean Atlantic. It was doing great. And I was happy with it. But then Chris, my twin brother, applied. And my dad actually went to Harvard Business School too. And I realized that Chris would definitely get in because Chris is a little bit smarter than I am. So I'm like, okay, great. So for the rest of our lives, going to be like, oh, this is my, my, you know, this is Chris, my son who went to Harvard. Um, and then this is my other son, Preston. And I was going to be like the second place son. And so uh, I thought, I'm like, all right, well, I'll apply. And hopefully I won't get in. And, you know, that'll be kind of the end of it. But then I got in. And I remember someone saying to me, the only thing dumber then not applying to Harvard when you can get in is applying, getting in and not going. So I went to business school for a couple of years. That entire experience, both being an investment banker for a year, having gone to business school, helped prepare me to be a real estate developer and to kind of analyze and look at any type of investment and do you know fancy spreadsheets on them. I remember when I was 23, I would our very first project, it was called Beach Haven, where we bought a pad site 
that had a foundation on it for a building that was never built off Route 1 in Rehoboth. And the only thing I knew how to do was do these really fancy pro formas and spreadsheets and look do, do all these kind of sensitivity graphs. And my partner and all the bankers thought I was a genius. What they didn't know is that's all I knew how to do. I didn't know anything about construction. I didn't really know anything about real estate. And who knows if my numbers were right? I mean, the numbers are only as good as the assumptions you put in them. But it looked like I really knew what I was doing because people weren't used to seeing those kind of advanced um, Excel spreadsheets and stuff down here. So that was helpful. And that I was kind of able to, to fool people into thinking I knew what I was doing really early on. And it was hard to make a mistake at that time in 1997 doing kind of condos along Route 1. So there was a lot of opportunity to make mistakes and not have it hurt you too bad financially. And that's kind of how it all started with Ocean Atlantic in 1997. Yeah, there's a lot to uh, real estate development too. I, I, I've heard that before. I worked in development for kind of a short period of time, two different stints at companies in, in the past. And um, we would often hire MBAs out of school and they'd, they'd have a lot to learn about the real estate industry. So your business has largely been on the for sale residential side. At least I think that's how you know, a lot of people associate with the shell name. Can you talk a little bit about you know, who your buyers typically are and you know, more so what you focus on when you're building a new development, kind of what all kind of goes into that? So the, the buying demographic has changed a little bit. When we first got started and we were predominantly doing for sale condos up and down Route 1, it was people buying second homes that, you know, families out of Pennsylvania that might have been kind of a dual income family driving their uh, minivan on the way back from a beach vacation and saw one of our signs on Route 1 and pulled over and bought one of our $95,000 two bedroom, two bath condos. That changed dramatically from now until then, um, or from then until now, in that the buyer today is almost entirely a pre-retiree slash retiree buyer. They're a tad more affluent, mainly because they have to be because the price points have gone up so much so much in the eastern part of Sussex County. They're not attracted to condos anymore. And so now you have a ton of these retirees that live in these high tax states surrounding Delaware that see Delaware as a great alternative, both for affordability and for proximity to the grandkids, to say moving down to Florida, or buying a second home in Florida. Often when we say pre-retiree, that's someone that purchases a house five to three to five years before they intend to retire. So it's temporarily a second home. And then it becomes their permanent retired you know, home. And they sell the uh, whatever their house is and, and then move down here for good. That demographic is very deep and very strong and is the bulk of the, the growth down here in the last 10 to 15 years. When people buy a new home, they think a lot about the impression that's given to the public and to their friends and family members when they visit them at their either new retiree house or at their second home. They want it to be something, they, they want a statement to be made at the entrance that this is a, well, a higher end, nicer development. So when you spend money, spending a lot of money at your entrance, beautifying it, putting ponds on either side with fountains. We often try to anchor the end of our entrances. If you, if you look at Painter's Mill, Coastal Club, a lot of our other projects, we anchor the end of the entrance with an architectural feature. Often it's the clubhouse. It doesn't have to be the clubhouse. 
And then we try to throw some open space at the entrance too, to give people kind of a more grand entry uh, feeling. We also, you know, depending upon the size of the project, its location, we're very particular about amenities. Some amenities that have become uh, far more popular in the last five to 10 years that we didn't focus on a lot, maybe 20 years ago, 20 years ago, it was a pool. And then you started spending more and more time, more and more um, money on your pool, and you made it more of a resort pool as opposed to just your standard kind of rectangular pool. But now it's walking trails. Walking trails were always big, but they're particularly big now. Dog parks is something that's relatively new in almost all of our communities, including our apartment communities. We have dog parks now. Another amenity that adds a lot of value but doesn't cost a lot is community gardens. So a lot, particularly retirees, if they're moving from out of the area, they're worried about how am I going to meet people? What am I going to do? What's if they're not that familiar with Southern Delaware and don't have a lot of friends down here already? And you try to solve, you try to answer those questions with the way you design your community and the types of amenities you provide. Because now they see themselves like, oh, I love to garden. I'll join the garden club. And by doing so, I'll meet some people and then we'll have them over for drinks. And then all of a sudden, I'll kind of have a social network going. And I'll feel a lot more comfortable about living in Southern Delaware. So that's a big component. Clubhouses, oddly enough, if you look at the cost per value, you know, like the, the, the impact that you have on the social lives of your homeowners relative to the cost, clubhouses really are not the best amenity. We do them on all, in a lot of our projects, but it's, it, it could represent 85% of your costs. And when we've gone out and queried our, our buyers, like there's been a couple of projects where we had a lot of people that have signed up ahead of time um, to be kind of informed about availability of lots or houses in that community when they're ready. And a couple of times we've gone out to that group of 300 people and say, okay, look, here's all of our options for, for, the, for the amenities. Here's exactly what it would cost. And here's what it would do to cost your home. So if we put in two tennis courts, the tennis courts are going to cost $40,000 a piece. That's $80,000. You have X amount of homes in your community. So you gotta, we're not going to do that for free. We're going to mark it up 20%. So you take that, divide it by the X number of your homes. And that's what it's going to do with the price of your home. So the price of your home is going to go up by $1,100 if we do these two tennis courts. And we did that for each amenity. And then we said, and here's what it does to the cost of your HOA dues on an annual basis. So we looked at the maintenance costs, insurance costs, and other components of kind of owning and maintaining the various types of amenities. And what happened is, in most cases, they didn't want a clubhouse. They saw how much money that was and how much it added to the cost of their home. But they would say things like, spend more money on the pool, or we need a bigger fit. We don't want a clubhouse, but we just want a big fitness center. We focus also on, I can't stand when a bunch of homes are built in the farm field where 10 years later or 20 years later, you drive through and it still looks like a bunch of homes in a farm field. So I don't know why no one, very few developers plant street trees. I know it costs money, but yeah. it tons of long-term value. So if you drive through a lot of our communities, particularly our older communities, you know they have beautiful street trees in them. But if you drive through even the community I live in, I live in Rehoboth Beach Country Club, yeah. no street trees. So it still looks like a bunch of homes popped in the middle of a farm field because that's exactly what it is. So it's, that's another thing that we pay a lot of attention to. And also just citing of your projects. Like no one ever sees the projects we don't do. They'll only see the ones we do because those are the ones we've vetted and we've decided makes sense to pursue. But there's a lot of projects out there either due to the environmental, environmental kind of components of the site 
that we're not comfortable with or due to other constraints or the fact that we can't get the number of homes we would want in that location to build the kind of amenities that we feel like that area needs. Um, and, and so we walk away from a lot of a lot of projects for those reasons as well. So I've, I've heard you mention recently that sales have basically never been stronger on the for sale side of your business since since the pandemic started, basically, it seems like right. what you said before. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you think is driving this kind of growth, you know, as well as some of the other trends you have seen happening as a result of the pandemic? Sure. So when the pandemic started, and things actually looked awful. Because everybody was kind of like a deer in headlights when the pandemic started, Both, you know, home buyers, contractors, us. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen, but certain people weren't hopping in their cars in late March and saying, let's go buy a house at the beach. It took until like mid-April when I think people in particularly surrounding urban markets felt cooped up and constrained and kind of a form of claustrophobia when you're sitting but you know, the, the more populated your area was, the more uncomfortable COVID was. A lot of those people that said, you know, at some point we're going to buy a house down at the beach and we're going to retire down there, just basically said, well, that time is now. Interest rates are low. I got to get out of this smaller house in a more urbanized environment. Let's go down where we can kind of breathe, you know, spread out a little bit in a more rural resort kind of coastal environment and buy a house. Now, it's not... That kind of sentiment was not unique to Southern Delaware. That happened all over the country. I think our proximity from a driving perspective to, to big major metropolitan areas actually helped us even more. But that was something that we could have never anticipated. Like right now, when you look back on it, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, of course. But we did not anticipate it then. So what happened was kind of maybe midway through April, sales just picked up. In a typical month for Shell Brothers, we would sell about 50 homes. In May, June, July, August, and September, we sold over 100 homes in each month. In three months, we sold over 130 homes. And we've been raising prices all along and didn't really change anything. It's not like we had some kind of incentive mm-hmm. that you know brought everybody down to, to... It's just that's how sales were going. It's kind of, you know, be careful what you wish for because now we have a problem in that We've sold so many homes that we have this huge backlog of sold homes that we haven't constructed yet. But the the local subcontractor base cannot handle us kind of saying, well, we need you, we need you to build twice as many homes right now. <laughs> I mean, we were already stretching even before the COVID hit. We were already stretching the sub base. Like things were good enough in this area from a, from a home, um, from a kind of residential real estate perspective that we were building about as fast as the local subcontractor base could, could build. And now we're selling twice as fast as that. Mm-hmm. So recently, I know you've been pursuing some more multifamily projects and even some affordable projects. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, why you've seen the opportunity and need to build that type of product in the area? Yeah, so with apartments, there's an interesting story as to why no apartments had been built down here. So when we did our first apartment project called Beach Plum Dunes, which was, I think we did around like 2011, 2012, um, is when we started looking at it. It was completed, I think, in maybe 2014 or 15, and it's in Lewis on the old Par 3 Midway golf uh, driving range. Um, when we got the market study done and talked to the bankers and everything, they said, well, hold on a second. 
maybe there's no market for apartments. And they said, no one's ever really built a professionally managed large-scale apartment complex in Southern Delaware, which was mostly true. That was due to land values and land costs. There's no such thing as a zoning in Southern Del- in Sussex County that's specific to rental apartments. You have what's called multifamily zoning. And anybody in their right mind before 2006, 2007, if you had multifamily zoning, you built for sale condos. Because the land, when you backed into the value, and with your, with your background, you know this, when you backed into the land value, taking here's what I could sell a finished condo for, here's my construction costs, here's my site work and other soft costs, and here's my projected return or kind of minimal return I need to achieve, and here's what I have left for land. When you went through that analysis with for sale condos, you got to a, a price of about fifty dollars to $55,000 a unit. Mm-hmm. That's what you could pay for the land and comfortably build for sale condos and sell them and make a 20% return on your costs. When you did that same exercise using year-round um, rental rates for like people that were renting condos or for the year-round rentals that were in the area, you couldn't really get them out of a, a professionally managed apartment complex. So you didn't really know what that would do to the values. But And you backed into the land value, it was worth $7,000 to $8,000 a unit prior to 2007. Now, after the residential real estate crash, and when condos fell heavily out of favor, you could start picking up land that either could be rezoned or was already zoned. In the case of Beach Plum Dunes that we bought, it was already zoned for multifamily. But the, the Jones family that permitted it, that were the, the, land, the owners of the golf course, were not developers. They were not builders. And the market fell out from under them. So no one was willing to buy the 144 units that they had permitted. So we came along in 2012 and bought it from them. We paid about eight to nine thousand dollars per unit, and then sold some land to Crooked Hammock, and we got our net cost basis per unit in the land down to about six thousand dollars. And now apartments work, and so we've done that in each of the situations of all of our apartment deals. We've picked up land for fifteen to twenty percent of what we would have paid for it back in two thousand four, two thousand five. Wow! Wow, that's yeah. that's interesting. Huh. And so. But, but the thing is, condos are actually coming back right now. A two-bedroom, two-bath, kind of in one of my older communities, whether it be Creekwood, Villas of Bay Crossing, um, North Village at you know Villages of Five Points, or the Tides, you could have gotten two years ago for 185 grand, 180 grand. Mm-hmm. Now they're 220. So what we're, the reason we're making such a big push into apartments is we think the window is closing. Mm-hmm. Like So the, the opportunity to find this land and build rental apartments on it, and finally end at a price where you can you can afford to build rental apartments on it, is not going to be there forever. Because as soon as the for sale condo market comes back, it's going to push those land values way up again. Yeah. And it's going to kind of close the door on on rental. Mm-hmm. But so you talked a little bit about affordable housing too. And we, you know, we're doing, I would say, more workforce housing than affordable. Mm-hmm. First of all, our rental apartments, even at their market rates, is already a form of workforce housing. When you take what market rents are and you look at area median income, if you make if your household makes between about 80 and 120% of area median income, you can afford to rent one of my apartments, which means the cost of your housing is going to be 30% of your income or less. You cannot say that about all the for sale townhomes, single family homes we're building. You need to make about 160 to 170% of area median income 
in order to afford to, to pay us $650,000 and pay the mortgage on that. Mm-hmm. So the, the apartments, even the market rate ones that don't, that don't have any restricted rents or restricted components to them is already a form of workforce housing. So it's already something that, you know, a bartender and a waitress could live together and pay us the $1,200 a month for a two bedroom, two bath and make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also going a step further with projects like Dutchman's Harvest and Lewis. That's going to be for sale workforce housing. We're, we're pushing down our margins on it and we're selling 42 of the 140 units to Diamond State Community Land Trust. That's going to further subsidize those units and make sure they're affordable to people, make, to households making 80% of area median income or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and ours will be affordable to people making, when I say ours, the other 98 units, it's a 140 unit project um, that are quote unquote market rate. So they're not subsidized with any grant money or tax credit money or anything like that. It's just subsidized by the fact that we set our margin at 15%. Typically, mm-hmm. we wouldn't set a margin that low. We, our margin really would be set to whatever the market would bear. If we happen to get the land at a great cost and the market bears us selling them for 500000 even if that's a 40% margin, that's what we're going to sell them for. But in this particular case, we've set our, mar- our max margin at 15% and we're kind of open book relationship with the city of Lewis so they can follow that. And those units will be affordable. And you'll have to, you'll have to qualify as a member of the, the local workforce. So there's a, there's a big kind of thing on restricted covenants to, so we can affirm that the people buying these are actually who we, who we built it for, mm-hmm. that they're members of the local workforce. The other thing we've done is we have a project that is called Ashton Oaks that is a 178-unit rental apartment complex, but where 20% of the units have restricted rents. So they're affordable to people making 70% of area median income or less. So it's not subsidized. There's no tax credit money. There's no taxpayer money involved in that. It's just a proffer that we made to the county during our approval process. Mm-hmm. You know, the county said, well, look, you need a rezoning. What are we going to get out of it? What's, what's the public going to get out of it? And in this particular case, they asked us to offer some discounted units. It's, uh, it's good to hear that, that some of that's happening because a lot of the jobs, as, as you know, in that area are service industry jobs. And it's, it's important to make sure that those folks can afford to live in the community. What are some of the larger challenges that you see in the future? Uh, for Sussex County and Delaware as a whole, you know, as we kind of work towards building great places to live, work, and play. I mean, we, we talked a little briefly already about one of them, road infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That's, we got to stay on top of that, and that's going to be tough to do. We really don't have any other major infrastructure issues. Sewer, the county's doing a great job right now expanding its sewer districts fast enough to handle the growth. Water, we have tons of. I know everybody likes to talk about how we're going to run out of water. Sussex County, we're not running out of water anytime soon. <laughs> but I'm worried about global warming. Mm-hmm. So I'm worried kind of mid to long term, the repercussions of sea level rise and global warming and what it does to southern Delaware and a lot of our communities. Like everybody wants to live near the coast. Mm-hmm. And even people that believe in global warming, you know, we obviously build our areas up and we bring in a lot of fill and make sure they're above the uh, the floodplain and everything. But it is concerning. And not necessarily because the, the properties we're building are going to flood. But what happens when we have a series of major storms and it wipes out our beach and the federal government eventually says, you know what, why are we fighting this losing battle? Why do we keep spending millions of dollars a year building up your beach 
It keeps depleting faster and faster. And we know we're going to lose in the end. Like we know this is kind of wasted money or that the money is only going to go, going to get us so far. It might get us another three years, another five years. But in the end, nature is going to win. And the day that they decide to kind of give up that battle and build like a seawall, even the people, because people will tell you, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Not that many people actually go to the beach. True. But everybody wants to know a beach is there. Yeah. And <laughs> the beach is kind of like the main amenity. So even those people that you know don't go to the beach, they'll have a hard time at, at seeing a reason to live here if we don't have a beach. So that kind of stuff worries me. Um, yeah. I actually think we have 15 to 20 good years ahead of us. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a crystal ball any more than anybody else doesn't have one. So I don't know how quickly we will see the effects of sea level rise and kind of those impacts on the overall market here. But I, I have a strong sensation that will be during my lifetime. You know, we're doing everything we can. We own the largest solar installer in the state of Delaware, Clean Energy USA. We just helped lobby to get something called CPACE passed in Delaware, which stands for Commercial Property Assessed Clean Energy Financing. So we're doing what we can to do our little part in making sure that our projects and our construction are environmentally sensitive and as energy efficient as possible mm -hmm. and use renewable energy components as much as we can. Anyway, I, I really appreciate your time today, Preston. This has been very interesting. You know, it's good to see you and, and catch up with you again. Uh, hope to see you soon. Great. Well, thanks for the time and uh, talk to you later. You can visit oacompanies.com for more information on Preston and his business. And for information on IPA, you can visit us at ipa.udel.edu. Thanks again for listening to First Aid Insights. Reach out with any comments and be sure to subscribe so that you'll never miss an episode.